Cuando yo los veo, cuando ustedes me ven, ya yo siento algo que me dice Chávez. Ya tú no eres Chávez. Tú eres un pueblo. Chávez se hizo pueblo. Hugo Rafael Chávez Frías, born July 28, 1954, is undoubtedly the most important politician in modern Venezuelan history. But Chávez was much more than a president. He was a teacher, a political scientist, a soldier, a visionary, a powerful orator, and a man profoundly committed to the well-being of the Venezuelan people. Former Uruguayan President Pepe Mujica, upon hearing the news of Chávez's death on March 5, 2013, said, I met Che. I met Mao. But I can say that this man is a character who broke the mold. Chávez's most important quality, however, was his ability to understand that the state of the world demanded change, and we had a duty to intervene. More than most, Chávez understood the moment and sought for the masses to take up their historical task to do away with the capitalist system. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings you independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftists and grassroots forces. On today's program, we're going to take a look at the political praxis of former President Hugo Chavez. La historia de la lucha de clases en la búsqueda de una sociedad de iguales, donde no haya oprimidos ni opresores, donde no haya explotados ni explotadores, sino donde todos seamos libres e iguales. Eso solo se logrará cuando la sociedad sea plena y socialista. Although the headlines about the country today largely focus on the multifactor crisis and the struggle against imperialism, within the Bolivarian process in Venezuela, and in particular during the years of Chávez's presidency, there was a serious and consistent effort to transition towards socialism. Hugo Chávez was president, yes, but he was also a brilliant political scientist. He devoured books, and as president, he had the ability to put these theories into practice. This made Chávez a leader like few others, and his profound connection with the people led him to continually revisit his policies, correcting errors, with the aim of advancing the cause of socialism and improving the welfare of the people. To talk about Hugo Chávez and his political praxis, we will speak with Chris Gilbert, professor of political science in the Universidad Bolivariana de Venezuela and an expert in Marxist political economy. But first, a conversation between Venezuela analysis Andreina Chávez and myself on the impact of Chávez on us, the Venezuelan people, and all of Latin America. Welcome, Andreina. It's so good to have you once again here on the program. And I think we need to get this out of the way. Andreina Chávez, Hugo Chávez. Is there any relation there? Something we need to clear up for our listeners? <laughs> Thank you, Jose Luis. It's so good to be back. Um, no, unfortunately, there is no relation, but I still like the idea that people think that there might be, and I like that people continue to ask me that. So, yeah, I really like my last name. <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, I would, I would also wear that with pride. I'd probably end up lying to people and say, yes, for sure. He's a very distant uncle. <laughs> yeah, I have done that. I have done that. I have told people that he was my uncle. I have told people, and people believe it. <laughs> but, you know, it's just joking. <laughs> right. 
Well, so in other episodes, we've talked about Chavez's personal impact on us, his personal impact on me. And that kind of leads me to wonder if me, a, a Mexican person, a Latin American, was so impacted by Hugo Chavez. I can only wonder what he represented for people like yourself, you know, someone who's Venezuelan, living in Venezuela. So tell us, what was his impact on you as a Venezuelan? Yeah, that is such a wonderful question and at the same time a little difficult to, to answer. I think something fundamental that Hugo Chavez meant to me was uh, learning to love our own country, our people, our cultural diversity, and our history. So as simple as that may sound, it is a matter of self-appreciation, of being seen and recognized as an important member of society, no matter my economic background or my ethnicity, living with dignity, having access to opportunities. And I think many people in Venezuela will tell you the same. I honestly do. That Chavez basically uh, rescued our memory, you know? So I also think that I wouldn't be the person that I am today, especially the the career that I chose as an anti-imperialist journalist, if it wasn't because of Chavez. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely agree with that. I think I think I mentioned this before, you know, I remember being on the streets of Caracas and making that commitment to the people that I met. And it's something that I continue to do today. And it's born out of that commitment. It was born out of the the inspiration that Hugo Chavez had on me. Uh, you know, and it's interesting. And I, I continue to try to, you know, do my best to to represent what's actually happening in the country and the, the voices of the people of Venezuela. And just the other day, I was on a program to talk about sanctions. And they asked me to comment first on the accomplishments of the Chavez government for the people of Venezuela. And to be honest, for a moment there, I felt kind of speechless. And it's not because I didn't know what to say, but rather it's because I felt like there was too much to say. So now I'm giving you that same challenge. What stands out for you as the legacy for the country domestically? Yeah, again, that is another wonderful question that is so difficult to answer. I think in many ways, Chavez represented a new beginning for every Venezuelan that had been historically excluded by the old political system from having a voice, from having an education, a home, and even being able to afford to put food on the table. So... As you know, Jose Luis, there has always been this misconception that Venezuela was a rich country and that Chavez destroyed that, when it was the opposite. We are and continue to be a very rich country in oil and other natural resources, but it was only with Chavez that the people saw any benefits from that. You know, poverty was cut in half and social missions helped our people to have access to everything that had been denied to them, healthcare, education, and, you know, even cultural development. So it is not easy to to understand the dimension of how much Venezuela changed for the better when Hugo Chavez came to power. But we can actually, this is actually something we can verify, but, you know, because the, the numbers are there, you can you can look it up. The problem is that outlets, the media, the corporate media continues to to spread this lie that Venezuela was a very prosperous and democratic country and that Chavez destroyed that. And that isn't true. I think most people know that 
and we just need to continue to remind people of that. And, you know, I think something that Hugo Chavez did that I, I also believe that is so important is that he vindicated our legacy as people who have always fought for their independence, sovereignty, and self-determination. I think Chavez reminded us that our indigenous people, our African ancestors, led rebellions for over 300 years to free themselves from Spanish rule. He also rescued Simon Bolivar's legacy, and he is emancipatory and integration project for all of Latin America. And, you know, the reason I mentioned this and why I believe this is so important is because we are now fighting a second battle for liberation. And this time is from U.S. imperialism. And I don't think we would have been able to resist and in many cases defeat U.S. aggressions without owning and respecting our history. And Chavez was hugely responsible for that. And, you know, it's funny because one of the strategies that the U.S. and the Venezuelan right-wing forces has been trying to, to do lately is to scare people, you know, Chavista people, saying that we lost our chance to fight for our second liberation because Chavez died and it is too late now. We are being told to give up that the Bolivarian Revolution had its chance and now we should accept that it's over. And every time I hear that, I remember that Chavez used to say that the Bolivarian Revolution was never going to end. The Bolivarian Revolution doesn't have a time frame or, or a time limit. It's, it's not going to expire as long as we are here and as long as we continue fighting despite difficulties, despite Chavismo changing, despite the criminal economic sanctions against our country. So, yeah, I think to give you like a final answer, I think Hugo Chavez meant the starting point to build a country where everyone can live with dignity and never under foreign powers domination. My last question is right along those lines. So last month we were witness to the Summit of the Americas, which was more of a boondoggle than a summit. You know, it was meant to be this event to showcase the return of U.S. engagement with Latin America, try to make up for the Trump years where he failed to attend the last summit, trying to save face. But it actually turned into a spectacle that revealed just how much influence the U.S. has lost in the region. You know, we had several leaders, Bolivia's Lucho Arce, Mexico's López Obrador, openly boycotting the event and saying it in those terms, not trying to hide it, not trying to say, oh, there's a scheduling conflict, but saying, I'm not going because the U.S. is choosing to exclude countries for political reasons. That was pretty impressive. And I can't help but think that a scene like that would have been unthinkable in the 20th century and that Hugo Chavez played a huge part in changing that. I think, like you said, it was Hugo Chavez who helped us as a region, be able to assert our sovereignty in this way. So along those lines, tell me, what do you think was Chavez's legacy in the international realm? So yes, I think Hugo Chavez uh, is definitely the reason why we have a, a continent that feels more united, you know? He, he was definitely the most important driving force for regional integration and for the anti-imperialist struggle in Latin America and the Caribbean. 
you know, it was Hugo Chavez who created uh, several organizations to promote economic, cultural, and political integration in our continent. And, you know, I'm talking about ALBA, UNASUR, CELAC. All these integration mechanisms have been key in the struggle for a united Latin America and the Caribbean. And I think uh, one important example is PetroCaribe, the PetroCaribe Alliance, which isn't working right now because of the U.S. sanction, but it's not over yet. I mean, it will be reactivated once the Venezuelan oil industry is truly recovered. But, you know, PetroCaribe is a, is a solidarity program. It was created by Chavez in 2005 to give Caribbean nations Venezuelan oil at fair prices. And this helped many countries advance their social and economic development. And I think this is such a good example of solidarity between our people and a good example of Chavez's legacy for the entire continent, the way he, he changed the way we saw each other, the way he changed the way we related to each other. You know, so, and again, when it comes to anti-imperialism, Chavez definitely put Venezuela at the forefront of that battle. And I think he inspired people around the world to do the same, to speak up against the many injustices committed by the U.S. government and its allies. And, and this is because Chavez wasn't afraid to say these things. He would say whatever he wanted. We saw Hugo Chavez denounce the war against Iraq. He, he said time and again that it was based on lines and it was true. He always denounced the killing of the Palestinian people. And he also, he reminded the world of the many violent coups and, and coup attempts against democratic governments in Latin America. Because he knew, Hugo Chavez knew that in order to fight U.S. imperialism, we needed to remember its crimes and to use any platform that we had to denounce those crimes because the media won't tell you that. So I think I think we can both agree that Hugo Chavez changed Latin America and the Caribbean forever. He united our people. And, you know, even now, even if these new progressive governments that are taking power right now, even if they don't recognize it, they are where they are today because of Chavez's legacy, because the people of those countries have never forgotten him and his liberation project for the continent. And, you know, I don't pretend to take away from those countries mm, historical moments that led them to choose once again progressive governments, but we both saw how the popular rebellions that preceded those electoral victories were inspired by Chavez's ideas and the Bolivarian project. Yeah, and I think sometimes people abroad maybe don't see that as clearly as we do being based here in the region, understanding that that legacy is still very much alive and well amongst social movements, amongst those of us who who dream and fight for, for a better world. And I think, in a sense, not just the region, but Latin Americans ourselves. We owe a great debt to Hugo Chavez. And in that sense, we also have a responsibility to make sure that his legacy continues to inspire us and that we continue to work towards a better world. Thank you so much, Andrina Chavez. I think it's been a great conversation as always. And yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to be able to work alongside you and alongside others here at Venezuela Analysis, thinking about how we can actually carry out his legacy. I want to just give you a chance to uh, share anything else with our listeners. Yes, I think you are you are right. And we, you know, when you were asking me at the beginning about the impact of Chavez's legacy on my own political development. And I was just 
thinking that uh, the the main impact was precisely becoming aware that the battle against imperialism was also on the media front. And Chavez called it the battle of ideas. And he used to say that this was the most difficult one because it meant fighting for people's minds to be free of domination and manipulation. You know, it is a very tough battle for us, for everyone in in being an anti-imperialist journalist. Um, you know, I remember that when I just began studying journalism at university, I think it was uh, 2008 or 2009, Chavez, I remember listening to Chavez giving a speech and he was telling the story of how Correo del Orinoco, a newspaper, was created by Simon Bolivar to promote Venezuelan independence. And the basis of this newspaper was to never deceive the people, to never lie to the people. And I remember that Chavez was calling on journalists to not to use their profession to lie or to manipulate the people. On the contrary, he said that being a journalist meant choosing a path of dignity. It meant supporting your own people in their fight for freedom. It meant being a shield between the people and those who pretend to hurt them. And yeah, I think that had a great impact on me and on you and people who are working on these uh, alternative media like Venezuela analysis, you know, this is how we carry on Chavez legacy. It means that we continue doing what we're doing so far, but that we never get too confident that we need to do more than we, if we can, we can do more. Like, for example, a year ago, we didn't have this podcast and now we do. And I think this is an important step in our struggle to communicate the truth about Venezuela. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners who make this all worthwhile. Thank you so much, Jose Luis. And thank you, everyone, for listening. In our interview, Chris Gilbert talks to us about his recent piece, Mesaros and Chavez, The Philosopher and the Llanero, where he looks at the development of Chavez's political ideas and his push for a communal system that replaced the destructive, alienating, and dangerous capital system. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the program. So in a recent piece called The Philosopher and the Llanero, which was a big hit with us here at the Venezuela Analysis Team, you traced the part of Chavez's development in his political thinking, and you looked at the experimentation that happened during the Bolivarian process, you know, going from cooperatives to these social property enterprises, and finally settling on the commune. What did this process tell us about Chavez's political praxis? How much of his political thinking and decisions were tied to what was his connection to the people and, in a way, a unique understanding that he had of their needs? First of all, I'd like to say I'm happy to be here and especially to talk about Chavez and Venezuela um, to an audience that is interested in these topics. Um, I, in the piece on, called um, The Philosopher and the Llanero, of course, I wanted to put emphasis on the influence of Mesaros on Chavez, though it was actually an influence that went two ways. I believe that Chavez in, influenced Mesaros as well. But as you pointed out, I also, I mean, I think that Chavez, Chavez um, developed his important ideas in relation to the popular movement and also in relation to intellectuals. And in this case, I was pointing to the central importance of Mesaros. And so in the piece, I wanted to show how, on the one hand, Mesaros' thinking, which I hope we'll have a chance to just sketch in a, at least in a, in a basic way, um, Mesaros' thinking provided some kind of template for the decision to build socialism from communes. But I also wanted to show how at the same time, 
the decision to attempt to build socialism using the communes as what Chavez called the basic cell also grew out of an evaluation, a self-critical evaluation of what had happened so far in the Bolivarian process. So as you pointed out, the first, um, you could say that Chavez really began to move forward in the attempt to build an emancipatory movement, especially after the coup d'etat in 2002, the 2002 coup d'etat attempt. And the first kind of microeconomic model for doing that was the cooperatives. And I think that probably Marta Harnaker and Michael Leverett were somewhat influential in that. It's also true that cooperative is, is a global movement. And in fact, the logo that was used here is the same logo that's I think used worldwide or at least used in Colombia, the two pine trees. And so cooperatives began to spring up around the country and they had their virtues. There was thousands of them that were registered, but a lot of them didn't work very well. And I think Chavez also realized that the idea had a basic flaw. I don't mean to say that cooperatives are not useful in the construction of socialism. People who are know the tradition of Marxism, Leninism, know that Lenin actually thought that cooperatives could be useful in building socialism in the early years of the Soviet Union. But um, they did have their limitations. And in a, in a technical sense or a legal sense even, a cooperative is a form of private property. And uh, it's a form of collective private property. That doesn't mean that under certain circumstances it might reach beyond that. But I think that proved to be a basic limitation of the cooperative movement. And then, and I'm being very schematic because of course, the schema that I put, like I'm gonna say cooperatives and then state-run property, that's of course people can easily encounter exceptions. But starting around 2005, Chavez tended to move more in the direction of state-run property. And I've suggested that the thinker, the intellectual behind that idea, in some way or another was Toby Valderrama, who was the, the educator of the union in, the, in PDVSA. And they thought, Toby Valderrama thought that the key idea of building socialism would be to have, he thought this was a Cuban model. I think he has a somewhat limited notion of what the Cuban model is, but the Cuban model would be to have state-run property. Of course, that's central to the way actually existing socialism was constructed. And then he thought the way you'd make it socialist is have a enlightened cadre running each business. So it's consciousness. In fact, Toby Valderrama called his radio program Mission Conciencia, Conscious Mission. So he thought consciousness would be able to make a, um, a state-run enterprise into something with a social or socialist vision. And that didn't, you know, as everyone looking at that, there were clear problems on the side of kind of bureaucratization and all the problems with state-run enterprise that work without worker participation, things tend to fall apart. Uh, workers lose their interest and there can be corruption and all the things that fall into the, the too open notion of bureaucratism. So faced with these two, two models, I think Chavez around 2008 was looking for something else and that's how he happened upon the commune. And I think Mesros's idea was, was central. Mesros's thinking was central in that. And maybe a little bit later on, we can say about how, why the commune or the, what Mesros calls the communal system was so important to Chavez. One little thing, one important thing, not little at all, is you were saying, what is, what is, what is it about Chavez's way of thinking? I think that it's really worth looking at Chavez carefully. I, as with any revolutionary thinker, people tend to have a reduced notion of their thought and they forget about some of the important things. I think it's forgetting is too generous, often it's politically motivated. But one of the great things about Chavez was his ability to learn and correct and adapt himself and learn from the people. It's all, Chavez is often presented as a kind of charismatic caudillo, but in fact, he 
had a great capacity to learn from experience, to carry out a kind of self-critique and adjust his ideas based on errors and based on what people felt about the project. Yeah, in that same piece, he also talked about how he eventually arrived on this idea of the, quote, commune as a main strategic element in socialist construction. And if you'd like, you can talk a little bit about what, what that meant in, in, in terms of the actual experience in Venezuela and the influence of Misado. But the point I wanted to get to is that I think often, especially in the English-speaking world, there's this tendency to actually overlook how seriously the effort of the transition towards socialism was taken. Can you speak to what was it about Chavez that set him apart from perhaps other leaders um, that were part of what was came to be called the Pink Wave, other projects in the region, or even past socialist experiences? What's, what set apart Chavez that made the actual serious work of the transition to socialism such an important part of the Bolivarian process? That's a very good question. I think it's a totally relevant question, especially because many people are rightly talking about a second pink tide happening right now. And I read their work with fascination. I agree there's a second pink tide, but the real question is, was the original tide pink or, or were there, or is that too broad a, a way of understanding it? I think that there are red elements to use a simple language to talk about. You know, there was a certain redder, redder tendencies in the original pink tide. And as you said, they actually proposed a transition to socialism. And I, I don't mean to opine about, for example, I don't know Bolivia very well, I believe that Bolivia was, a, was also a rev, had revolutionary proposals, but what I know about is Venezuela. And Chavez actually did propose a transition to socialism. When I read some of the work that's out there now about the current pink tide, much of it's very critical, but I think what people should look at is, is precisely some of the topics that we're looking at today. It's like, what actually were the proposals, the strategic proposals of the original, in some of these original processes? Just to lump them together as progressive processes tends to kind of wear the edges off of all of the strategic thinking that happened. Because it's precisely those strategic ideas, the strategic thinking about the transition to socialism that could point a way forward in the current situation. Um, so Chavez did propose a transition to socialism. In fact, it's many people uh, forget the subtitles of books. And uh, uh, Mesa's great book that Chavez brandished in many talks was this thousand page work called Beyond Capital but it also refers to transition, a theory of the transition as a subtitle. And I, it's not really in a, a good situation to go into uh, all the abstractions that Mesros deals with, which are often quite difficult. But I wanna say something basic about his way of thinking that Mesros distinguished between capital and capitalism. And he felt the capital, was a broad, the capital system was a broader system. If you were to make a, a Venn diagram, you'd make capital into a big circle and you make the capital system into kind of like a subset of cap, I mean, sorry, you'd make the capital system into a big circle. And inside that big circle, you'd put capitalism, strictly speaking, as a smaller circle. But there's many variations of the capital system. And he felt the post-revolutionary social, 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 post Soviet system was another variant of the capital system that they hadn't really proposed an authentic socialist alternative. So what is the nature of this capital system that it could embark both the strictly speaking capitalist versions, but also the post-revolutionary Soviet system. Um, one of the, to, to make things very simple, uh, the capital system, uh, Mesros felt that capital was a kind of metabolism. So as we know, capital is not a thing. It's not a stock of products, nor is it a bunch of money. We always say that people with a Marxist formation understand that capital is a social relation, but Mesros put an emphasis on the idea that it's a metabolism, a kind of 
uh, almost to use Foucault's word, like capillary system, that, like a liquid that creeps through society. And the essence of that metabolism is, is that it's anti-democratic. It involves a hierarchical command over labor. It involves um, extraction of surplus labor through a, a command over labor through, and, the, and alienated means of production. And it alters and makes, in, asserts its hierarchy and its anti-democratic character in the sites of production and throughout society as a whole. So that means that the only way to really eradicate that, the, the metabolism of, of capital is through a profoundly de democratic metabolism, an alternative metabolism. And Messrs's key language for that was to talk about substantive democracy. In fact, Chavez, in his last really important discourse, uh, the Golpe de Timon, the Strike at the Helm speech in 2012, he's, he um, referred to the importance of substantive democracy as the measure of, of whether one is advancing in the socialist transition. So I propose this idea that, I mean, I think this is, this is a basic way of understanding why the commune is important. How can you, what institution, what mechanism, what apparatus can promote um, substantive democracy throughout society and sites of production throughout, and throughout society generally? And my answer to that is a commune. Only communes or something like a commune, some kind of freely associated producers can implement a democratic, substantively democratic logic throughout the society. So that's, in, in a few words, that's, what, what Messeros proposed and what Chavez assumed when he began to talk about the communist, the basic cell for advancing towards socialism. So this, this conception, this, this commitment to this idea of a more authentically democratic experience, how much is that, do you think, related to Chavez as political practitioner, right? How much of it was really him taking admittedly difficult texts like the one from Mesados and translating it into uh, an actual political practice inside Venezuela. Sure, I think um, it's central to, to I've, always, I've wanted to emphasize how central it was to Chavez's thinking, but to be fair to alternative visions and to, uh, to reflect what actually happened in reality. It's also true that Chavez at the end of his life kind of pursued a two-pronged two approach. And I think the, as many critics of the process, if you'd like to take um, one of the best known ones, Jeffrey Weber, Massimo Modoni, um, Frank Garicho, they, they point to how the Bolivian and Venezuelan process, they began to turn lose their popular character, lose the project of national um, emancipation somewhat in the last years. And that's a, at least a partial truth in Venezuela because in, in practice and in actually concrete steps, a lot of things that happened in the Bolivarian process in say the last four years were a little bit less, had less popular support, involved less participation. So I always maintain, and a group of us maintain this, that there was a kind of dialectic thing, process in which Chavez's actual concrete steps tended towards uh, even, even clientelistic practices or semi-clientelistic practices like the Gran Mission Vivienda Venezuela. I think, you know, it's obviously Gran Mission Vivienda Venezuela was a wonderful project, but the real question it's the giant housing process, which provided millions of houses to people. But the real question is, is it a revolutionary project? Because in the transition to socialism, you need to think about the next step. So if, if you give people houses, is that actually a step that leads to creating more revolutionary consciousness? And of course, the Grand Mission Vivienda Venezuela did have some elements that were with backing of the Pobladores movement, where there was actually self-construction. When people are actually involved and participating, that can lead to a revolutionary consciousness. It can create a what Michael Lebowitz calls a second product. When you work, you create a product, but you also create yourself as a different sort of being 
with greater consciousness, with revolutionary consciousness. So I always contend that Chavez pursued some projects that weren't so revolutionary, but at the same time, at least on a discursive level, he sowed the seed for a highly revolutionary project that actually pointed towards socialism, and that's the commune. And fortunately, that seed is taking root. I, I'm very enthusiastic about what's, what's happening in Venezuela right now on the grassroots level. Even especially in the past six months, there's been a real push in communal construction and attempt to link communes together. So if I talked to, about like two prongs of, or two directions that the Bolivarian process maybe pursued between 2008 and 2012, one that was more state-like, I don't want to say clientelistic, that was a bad term, but kind of from above, uh, from above process. And another that was a more revolutionary and socialist proposal. Fortunately, that revolutionary socialist proposal seems to be a seed that, that is actually uh, beginning to, to take root and grow right now. Of course, in any socialist transition, uh, there's all kinds of challenges. Chavez himself said it was more difficult than going to Mars. Um, so there's all kinds of challenges and possibilities of failure. But I think we can take heart in some of the recent developments and the way, particularly the way the grass movements, grassroots movement here, in the worst of situations, I mean the crisis of 2016 and 17, in the very worst situation, they turned to this format and began to construct communes as a, on the one hand to resolve their basic problems, but also to resolve them with a, with a vision for the future. Everyone in, in Venezuela in 2016 and 2017 was attempting to resolve their problems. But the, the, the wonderful thing is that a group of people, partly because of Chavez's legacy and partly because of their own vision as, as revolutionaries, were able to direct that process towards something that would be, or that has a great potential to emancipate, emancipate people in the medium and long term. I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually wanted to wrap up our discussion precisely with a, a brief conversation about his legacy. And you talked about his his last speech at Golpe de Timon, which uh, you know ended up being in a way his political testament, where he talked about comuna o nada, right? Stressing the need to deepen the process by building the communal state. And we saw a lot of enthusiasm, particularly right around that time period, that it kind of waned. And I'm happy to hear that there's a renewed enthusiasm for it. But I do think it's important to note that Venezuela is still far from the goal of actually building a communal state. And I know that you've been visiting with commune arts throughout Venezuela and talking to them, documenting their struggle to build the commune under these, these challenging circumstances. And I wanted to just mention to our readers, we did a whole episode on, on the efforts to build communes under duress and invite people to, to listen to it. But I wanted to ask you, what role do you think Chavez's vision, his, his emphasis uh, on the need to construct the communal state played in the, in the efforts that we're seeing today to build uh, I would say it played an immense role. Uh, one thing, one figure I use, figure of speech that I use when I visit communes, or it occurs to me repeatedly when I visit, visit communes in Venezuela, is time travel. I always feel that I'm going back to, um, when I see what's happening in the communes, I feel that I'm going back to the original days of Chavismo, in which there was a, a lot of popular enthusiasm, and well, more important than enthusiasm was participation. And, and more important than participation is what Chavez himself called protagonism. So you can see a lot of how people have seized hold of, of these ideas and made them their own. Um, I, I once wrote that Chavismo, authentic Chavismo lives on in the commune. I think that's true. I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. And uh, you can um, not only, obviously, you know, like what are the main features of a commune? A key feature that I already mentioned is substantive democracy. All the communes have a certain degree of substantive or 
substantive, a high degree of substantive democracy, which doesn't mean that it's perfect. You know, Messero said that a yardstick, it's a yardstick for measuring one's progress. He precisely mentioned that it was a yardstick because he knew that it couldn't be done uh, in one day. So it's a question of which direction you're heading. And of course, all the communes have a certain, you know, like popular forms of organization. There's often a, a central leader, a charismatic leader. So the question is, well, is there another process taking place? And I think you can see that in all the communes. Uh, sometimes there's a central leader, but, often, but there's always an important level of democracy. And I believe a growing level of democracy. Maybe readers of Venezuela analysis know that there's a, um, all communes have a communal parliament, which is made up of spokespeople from the different communal councils. And uh, they get together to make the major decisions. Um, and those decisions, of course, are political and economic because a successful commune is a productive commune. Another feature of communes, of course, is a kind of emancipated, precisely because of substantive democracy is a kind of a more, more emancipated labor practice. In other words, people are, are able to determine their own, to a high degree, determine their own methods of production and the goals of production. You know, I was trying to sketch a little bit the um, certain symmetry between um, the Soviet system and uh, capitalism in its strictest, in the strict sense. And one of the unfortunate features of the Soviet system was externally imposed production goals. You know, people talk about the five-year plans and those externally imposed production goals is really an anti-socialist idea because the important thing would be that production goals are self-determined. Um, and you can see how that takes place in the communes uh, through a democratic process. The communards get together and they reflect on what they should produce, how they should produce it, for whom. Um, another feature of communes that I'm particularly enthusiastic about, and this is a somewhat abstract idea, though in reality, no, nothing in reality should be abstract, but it's communal consumption. And when you say the words communal consumption, people think about maybe eating together on a big meal. And that, that's a fine idea, and it might be part of communal consumption. But the more important thing is that capitalism separates production and consumption. That's why we have so much stuff that's produced that nobody wants, it's destructive, uh, that's imposed on people. And so the important thing about communal consumption would be that people determine the consumers themselves who are present in the commune are able to determine what should be produced, that there's a real use value, a real need, how much of it is needed. And then another thing that, and, you know, Messeros is for those who are ambitious, they can look at Messeros' chapter called, chapter 19, which is called The Communal System and the Law of Value. But what is the law of value? The law of value is that uh, in, capital, in the capital system, time, what, what counts as value, what produces value is uh, socially necessary labor, and that's measured by time. And so it's only time that can, it's only labor that produces surplus value, and that's measured by time, or produces value, that is, which is measured by time. And it's only that that counts. And so an important thing in a commune would be liberating human activity from that straitjacket of, of the value-time relation. So you can see how in communes people are liberated to, do, to undertake activities that are quite valuable in themselves, but in, in, in terms of use value, but wouldn't produce capitalist value. That's another exciting thing to see taking place. Um, when, when one talks about a commune, I, I, um, you know, I'd like to say that I'm extremely enthusiastic about them. You can see, the one, one of the wonderful things is to see um, ideas that you perhaps have read about and understand on a theoretical level to be emancipatory, but to, um, and, but to see them realized in a concrete sense. And often people, what people's activity exceeds one's own what's one's own expectations. So 
it's really been a, a pleasure um, and a learning experience to be able to visit the communes in this country. Even though, as you pointed out, it's at best a seed, you know, the number of people who are actually integrated into working communes uh, in terms of percentages of population is actually quite limited for now. But for example, just this weekend in the Vantitresenero Barrio, thousands of people participated in a voting process to elect uh, the spo elect spokespeople for the communal councils, which would be into the El Panal commune. So a sense of the movement is growing. And um, there is an increased participation, especially in the wake of the pandemic, in which, which put a kind of wet blanket on participation across the country and across the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that's always been important for me as, as a political activist is, is seeing the inspiration that is there, that is in Venezuela. You know, the first time I went to the country, it was 2005, and, you know, sort of the height of this discourse around the socialism of the, of the 21st century. And obviously a lot has happened since then, but things like what you just described, the enthusiasm, the participation, the substantive democracy that does exist in these spaces where there is very much, I think, the, the seed for a, a new type of society, for socialism to actually be able to, to take root and, and hopefully continue to inspire people throughout the world. I, I really appreciate your analysis. It's really uh, thought-provoking discussion with you today. And I just want to give you a chance to, to say something to the audience if, if uh, there's something you'd like to, to share with us. Um, we were talking about the, the new pink tide and, uh, what, and how that's understood and perhaps uh, you, some things that need to be added to that. And one thing I'd like to say, and this is, I've often, I've written in different ways, I tried to approach Chavez's legacy in different ways, but one idea that I keep coming back to is a certain idea of universality. And by, by universality, I want it to be understood that I'm not saying that there's one kind of subject in the world. What I mean is something much more humble, which is that capitalism or the capital system is basically a worldwide system right now. So people's attempts in one part of the world to overcome the capital system uh, apply to that universe of capitalism. So I think that a lot, an important part of Travis's legacy, not all of it, is a universal legacy in that limited sense. And that applies to the pink tide, especially in Latin America. In other words, like, when people look at the pink tide, I, I feel somewhat disappointed in some of the, while I sympathize with some of the, with the critical analyses of the, the second pink tide, I'm somewhat disappointed in that they sometimes treat it like a patient, you know, like a patient rather than something active. And I think by looking at Chavez's proposal, one can see something that could be applicable to solve the problems to radicalize this next pink tide. So, you know, the universal parts of Chavez's legacy would be some elements of this transition these proposals about how to make the transition to, um, to socialism. And of course, like any attempt, it's a hypothesis. I'd say it's a universally interesting hypothesis. That doesn't mean it's, it's, it's necessarily correct, but it's worth considering and uh, attempting to, to pursue it in one's own context. I think that's one of the things that many of us here are interested in working on is recovering this most, um, the most programmatic and the most revolutionary elements in Chavismo precisely because we think it's relevant to the present in Venezuela especially, but in Latin America more generally. And I'm sure that it has a worldwide importance. In fact, you can see that in the, it's very exciting to see in the global north, the United States, for example, there's a lot of young people who are interested in socialism. And that's a giant step that's taken place only in the last 10, 15 years. But they would do well to look to Latin America and attempt to learn what has been tried here because I think Steps, important steps have been taken in Venezuela and Cuba, and people in the global north could learn from them and apply them in their own context. Absolutely, and I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much.
We've been speaking with Chris Gilbert, expert in Marxist political economy. Thank you very much, Jose Luis and Venezuela Analysis. I want to end today's episode with a personal note. I don't think I would be who I am today had it not been for Chavez. On the two occasions I had the opportunity to see him speak in person, despite the fact that he was addressing a massive crowd, it almost felt like he was speaking to all of us, individually. Chavez's ability to connect with the people was extraordinary. It even transcended borders. Upon hearing news of his death, my own mother called me in tears, lamenting his death. Though my mother has never been one to engage in politics, she understood that this man was different, and she knew what he represented to me. I was riding on a bus when I received her call, and despite being surrounded by people, I couldn't help but also break out in tears. The loss of Chavez is incalculable. But today, we are before a second pink wave of leftists and progressive leaders throughout Latin America. There is no more fitting tribute to the man who kicked off the first wave than putting his vision for a united continent back on the table. The end of capitalism will not come from above. It will require our participation, something that Chavez asked of us constantly. And I think that is truly the way we can honor Hugo Rafael Chavez Frias and his legacy. That's our program for today. Thank you for joining us. Remember, our on-the-ground work is 100% funded by readers. Be sure to visit us at venezuelanalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media, from Telegram to Instagram and, of course, Twitter. If you enjoy the program, please share it with your friends and leave us a review if you can. It really helps us out. We'll end today's episode with the song Vamos, Baquine pa'l Comandante, a song dedicated to Chavez by Puerto Rican artist Intifada. Te extrañamos, Comandante. Fui arrastrado por la zona.
hierro derretida en el ocaso celebraban las noticias y me perdí el caracazo dijo un hombre por ahora convirtiéndose en gigante justo frente a mis narices en el infierno de Dante revolcando el hormiguero como un cerro de coraje un hombre de carne y hueso sin reserva o maquillaje el cantor bajo la lluvia enviado desde el cielo abrió su paracaída hoy el soldado es eterno se murió de tanto amarlo ese pueblo que le aclama si apagó la voz al diente más no su llama Vamos a distribuirlo, dividirlo y expropiarlo Para colectivizarlo, vamos a pavimentarlo Vamos, vamos a sembrarlo y a regarlo y a abonarlo Sobre una orquídea de fuego para jamás olvidarlo Distribuirlo, dividirlo y expropiarlo Para colectivizarlo, vamos a pavimentarlo Vamos, vamos a sembrarlo y a regarlo y a abonarlo Sobre una orquídea de fuego se dirige hacia el espacio como espada luminosa sobre un caballo de fuego de una sábana gloriosa. Le acompaña las estrellas que flotan en su bandera, confundiéndose en la noche con las casas de madera que iluminan a los cerros de todo el proletariado, repartiendo semillitas en el surco del arado como un árbol de Zamora. Como Aragón y prendido, algunos oyen mi verso, pero no han puesto el oído. No desprecio la teoría, compañeros, lo que pasa, toda ciencia es artificio, frente al llanto de las masas, porque no voy a callarme, narro desde mi ventana las porque a mí me da la gana, tengo mi ciudadanía. No me llames extranjero, me la dieron los chamitos en el 23 de enero. Díganme nacionalista, de ese crimen soy culpable porque mi verso es de guerra y mi lengua como un sable se le entrego a Venezuela. Como a Cuba, Leningrado, como un llanto compartido de mi Puerto Rico atado, libertador no azarado, sobre un mar embravecido. Hoy tu fruto está maduro, vámonos a repartirlo. El árbol poderoso comienza en la semilla. Y aunque el amor sea profundo y alto, es también mínima la semilla del hombre. El nacimiento del arroyo, el polen, el huevecillo de la blanca paloma, la piedra que ha rodado por el monte nevado, desde su pequeñez llegan al mar, al girasol, al pueblo interminable, al planeta de nieve que nada detendrá. En la lucha social también los grandes ríos nacen de los pequeños ojos de agua, caminan mucho más y crecen hasta llegar al mar. En la lucha social, también por la semilla, se llega al fruto, al árbol, al infinito bosque que el viento hará cantar. Roque Dalton.